The 2022 Formula One season is in full swing and the motorsport is seeing growth like never before. From old school fans that never left, new fans craving that drive to survive drama, or the casual fans who find themselves tuning in more and more, there's always something new to learn in Formula One. This episode is for the new fans asking themselves, exactly when do the drivers use the bathroom? All this and more on ESPN's new Formula One show, Unlapped. There's two championships in F1, one that the teams really care about and one that the fans really care about. Red Bull went to NASA and they said, what's the best way for us to organize our communication between our engineers? Bowel movements is another search. He was just pointing at me and he was like, you effing freeloader. Like, and he was with a big smile on his face. He's like, you guys are all the same. Welcome to Unlapped, our new show where we talk about everything Formula One. I'm Katie George, joined by Nate Saunders and Lawrence Edmondson, two of our F1 experts here at ESPN. And we're launching our new F1 show, Unlapped, which is better late than never here in 2022, guys. Yeah, we finally got there, but delighted to say we're here. And uh, I mean, Miami seems like so long ago, but actually really wasn't, which is when we first started talking about this. So yeah, delighted to be finally on a Zoom call with you guys. Um, Nate and I, I mean, the amount of conversations we have in cars, rental cars, going to tracks and going back to hotels, we're like, we should turn this into a podcast. We talk about this stuff all the time and like we have opinions on stuff that we want to put out there. So we love talking about the sport. And of course, with Katie, we, you know, we met you in Miami and uh, we had a lot of good chats there about F1. So it's great to kind of, yeah, put this out there. And now everyone can hear what we think rather than just the two of us in a rental car. And they exactly. can judge whether they're good chats or not. I mean, <laughs> we think they're I good. think they're good chats. I think they're good, good chats. So I decided let's put some microphones in front of you guys. And you guys have been gracious enough to let me hang out with you guys and listen and learn as well as our new fans here in the States. Uh, I just have to do the math always with the time change to schedule these with you guys. So I'm so excited. Uh, it's finally here for us. Remember, like this video and leave us comments below asking questions that you might have or what you want to hear more of, uh, what you're interested in. And if, of course, subscribe to uh, ESPN for more F1 content. Today, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than you know discussing a specific race, this episode is called F1 for Newbies. And the entire purpose is to break down F1 for all new fans interested in the sport. F1 history, drivers, tracks, and the real important questions. We'll try to hit all of that. But first, let's take a walk uh, down memory lane. Nate and Lawrence have been lifelong F1 fans. So I want to know how you were introduced to the sport and how eventually you got involved covering the sport as well. Well, for me, it was, uh, I guess, like most people my age, watching it on TV. My dad was a fan already, but he would casually watch it. And, you know, we'd have over here in the UK, it's tradition to have a Sunday roast. And uh, that's a Sunday roast dinner. And uh, we'd position that around the race time. So wherever the race was in the world, we'd make sure we got both the race and the dinner in. So it was a family thing. But then for me, when it really hit was the first time I heard a Formula One car in real life. It was a V10. Uh, we don't have those anymore. They don't quite make the same noise anymore. I mean, F1 cars still sound good, but they don't sound as good as they used to. And that after I heard that, I was like, this is a sport for me. Get me in. I like football, soccer, uh, you call it in the US. I like lots of other sports. But for me, as soon as I saw F1 Live, I was like, this is my sport. I'm in. Similar for me, although we had to we had to squeeze in church on Sunday morning as well. So I remember always when I was a kid, I don't know what the first race I watched was. It must have been about 95, 96. But I'd tug on my dad and my mom, like, come on, we've got to leave at the end of church. So I was like, we've got half an hour to get to watch the race. Um, and that's what we'd do. It was the same sort of thing. We'd all sit around and watch the race. 
And being from an Italian family, I always remember that I used to root against Schumacher before he got to Ferrari because he was against Damon Hill. And then uh, my nonna said to me, no, you, you've got to support Schumacher. Like you've got no option. You have to support the Ferrari. So I, you know, my allegiance has changed around. And then a few kind of painful years watching Schumacher not win. And then he did win. And me and my dad went to Imola. We went to Monza as fans. And it was just incredible. And um, I think that's one of the great things now about seeing the growth in America is I think it was very easy to watch Formula One growing up in the UK. And maybe not so much in America. I think that's slowly changing now. But we were certainly really lucky that it was on. And and it, it, we've been quite lucky with having British champions as well, kind of just all over the place. There's always been someone to root for, someone to talk about at school. And um, it's just it's just got better and better, you know, as 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 I've got older, even though the sound of the cars maybe hasn't, as Lawrence alluded to, but there's been other things that have kind of kept us around, I guess. That was something that was interesting to me because Miami was my first F1 experience, seeing it live and in person. Certainly I've seen it on television. And as you mentioned here in the States, you know, it was NASCAR and, and IndyCar is predominantly what we saw and supported. Uh, and I grew up here in Louisville, Kentucky. So Indianapolis is, you know, an hour and a half, two hours. So I've been to the Indy 500 and what an event that has been. But my uncle and my cousin uh, have loved F1 since my cousin was itty bitty, my uncle, you know, since he was a kid. And so they kind of turned me on to it and, and then drive to survive, obviously, during COVID and the pandemic. Uh, I think just really sucked uh, American fans, knew a new audience in, and it was so enticing. And that was kind of my, my first real look behind the scenes. And I got a true understanding of just how dynamic this sport really is. And I think what's unique about it is, yes, you're on a team, but oh my gosh, you're an individual and your teammate is your, your biggest competition. And that dynamic, I think, is different than what we see here in American sports. And, and I think that that's why it's so fascinating and it's, it's continuing to grow um, tremendously here in the States. As you guys mentioned, you know, when you were kids watching it, the sport has changed and evolved so much since those days. And you know, if you've been watching the races this year, you've probably heard a lot of people talk about how 2022 kicked off, you know, a new era in Formula One. So, so Lawrence, when we talk about the new era, the new regulations, what does that actually mean? Well, uh, it means just that they, they changed the regulations this year. And the reason they did it was because for years and years and years, Formula One cars uh, have struggled to overtake. Of course, one of the main reasons we watch Formula One racing is to watch the cars race, yet because of basically the physics involved with a race car, uh, how reliant it is on airflow, clean airflow coming over it to create what we call downforce, which keeps it stuck to the track to make it go fast around corners. It's so reliant on that. But the problem is, is when you get behind another car, uh, that car is creating all this turbulent air off the back of it, a bit like a wake that you get from a speedboat in the water. And imagine as you kind of try and take your canoe over that wake of of the speedboat, you get bumped around and it's the same for a Formula One car. And so they would lose performance as soon as they got close to anyone. So F1 looked at this and for years this had been, people had known about this, this was not new in Formula One, but uh, F1 looked at it and said, what can we do? We need to have a set of regulations that basically clean up the airflow coming off the back of the car and make the following car less susceptible to turbulent air. So I know we've already got a little bit techie and I know this is meant to be an introduction, but that was the thinking behind these new regulations. And put simply, it was to make the racing more exciting. And I think it's worked. I think we've seen you know, a real, a real step in that. And it's coincided with this boom in interest, uh, certainly in the United States, but I would say worldwide, 
Um, and that's the other side of F1 that's so exciting. Like you said, the individuals, all those drivers. When I go back to that time when I wanted to get into F1, the paddock, which is where all the teams live over a race weekend, seemed like this area that you would never reach. You know, it was it was so untouchable. It was so guarded, these gates that, you know, you couldn't go through. And now what Formula One has done is brought the cameras through. And so we get in our own, in our living rooms, on our Netflix channels, you know, a real insight into what's going on with the drivers and so on. So uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on in F1. But in terms of the regulations, yeah, it's all about making these cars uh easier to race so easier to get alongside each other and get those dramatic moments that we've seen a number of already this season and regulation changes are one thing that really do make f1 really fun to follow because they often act as kind of this great leveler in the sport a lot of other sports have different things you'll have teams go through cycles of being great and not being great um i mentioned schumacher in the early 2000s what actually stopped his run was changes to regulations in 2005 and that really knocked Ferrari off of their pedestal for a bit and you see this happen time and time again and we've seen it with Mercedes this season and it means that constantly even even though Lawrence is completely right this one was aimed specifically at improving racing it was also kind of aimed at like well this is also a reset for the teams to kind of change the pecking order and if you look at some drivers you know some drivers have you know their careers have been made by a a, a regulation change at the right point I mean Lewis Hamilton went to Mercedes you know he made a very good decision to go there and then it happened that they then mastered this last set of regulations. Jensen Button won the championship in 2009. So it shows you that it, it's a great way of, of just almost pushing the reset button. And it doesn't always work sometimes. I mean, Mercedes through to 2017, when there was a small regulation change, actually got stronger somehow, it seemed, at, at that time. Um, but it's another thing that just keeps F1. It, like you said, Katie, it's that kind of drama and that it, there's things happening on track and there's things happening away away from the circuit as well. And it all just kind of bubbles up together. And yeah, right now we're in a great a great period. And F1's really lucky as well in that we've got this kind of golden generation of, of talent coming through. So yeah, it couldn't be more perfect right now. I think also what was interesting is just the intricacy involved in building these cars, right? It's not like you can just go buy one and then you make a couple of tweaks in the garage before these races. You know, there's a couple engine distributors and then everybody, each team, the 10 teams, they're building these cars from scratch. You just kind of discuss the process of maybe the peek behind the curtain of, of just how in depth these teams have to go. And it's not something that they're just working on a couple months, you know, leading into a new season. They've been working on the cars for the new regulations, some teams for a couple of years now. That, that's right. And um, I mean, it's amazing. You go to these teams factories and they've got a thousand people, a thousand people putting two cars on the racetrack every weekend, which is such a weird ratio, isn't it? But these design offices where they where they design them where they come up with them you just got screen after screen after screen after screen and all these like different little intricate bits all designed to make the car go faster but of course all those individuals working have to work together because if one part of the car doesn't happen to work with a design concept of another part of the car it won't go very fast and so it's a remarkable process that they go through just trying to tweak it and the really good thing about this year is that they've all had these new regulations which means they've all had a blank sheet of paper but they also haven't been able to see what the other guys are doing so there's no cheating you know everyone turned up at the start of this year with their ideas their concept and we saw how dramatically different they could be even in a set of regulations that we've been warned would be very restrictive about what you could do and the shapes you could create on your car and yet we get there and the mercedes looks entirely different to the ferrari which looks different again to the red bull and despite all that uh, you know, at some races this year, certainly with Ferrari and Red Bull, they've been within a tenth of a second of each other around a three to four mile track. 
just 0.1 seconds or less separates them. And that I always find utterly remarkable. And it's just incredible. I always like it just before we go testing as well. We'll see all of the launch cars and you know the new liveries and we get excited. And the top teams especially always just say, this car you're looking at, it's not the car we're going to have at testing. And the car at testing is not going to be the car we have for the first race. And usually that's not just them kind of, you know, throwing smoke screens around. I mean, it is a little bit sometimes, isn't it, Lawrence? Like they're just, you know, they're just playing around with us, but they're working so hard on these cars behind the scenes that they're literally bringing stuff to the racetrack that has just been put in a, you know, has been put in a container, put in a, put in a ship and sent straight out to the circuit. So it's just relentless. It's breakneck. And, you know, you'll hear teams say, we've got an upgrade coming in three races. And some of my friends go, why don't they just bring it for this race? It's like, mate, if they could, they would, <laughs> but it's not just like get hammer and nails out and put it together. Yeah. It's, it takes time. And like Lawrence said, everything has to, has to come together and fit around the concept they chose at the start of the season. So yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I've been to NASA once um, and seen that and that was pretty impressive, but I think F1 teams are, are up there for just how ingenious they are at designing things. It's, it's a whole nother world. Yeah. And they're yeah, also, go ahead. Yeah. Interesting you say NASA, Nate, because um, I was at Red Bull uh, a few weeks ago and they showed us their race comms room, which is essentially their ground control is where they uh, make a lot of decisions from their factory about what's happening at the racetrack. And they have the huge screens there, much like, you know, you'd see a uh, mission control with, you know, the, the space shuttle taken off and all the data and stuff like that. And they actually went, Red Bull went to NASA and they said, what's the best way for us to organize our communication between our engineers so that what filters through to the driver in the car, and there's only usually one person who's allowed to talk to the driver in the car, and that's their own race engineer. But all of the information that they have, which is huge, reams and reams of data, has to be filtered down and down and down until the most important bit reaches the driver in the car. And they actually talked to NASA about that because this is the level that they're working on, the engineering that they're working on. It's almost like um, putting a, a, a spaceship up in space, uh, but instead they're just trying to get a race car as fast as possible around, around a little lap. It's so fascinating, golly. So give me some numbers here because think salary cap in American sports, there's a budget cap that teams are working under. And you know what would be an average cost of some of these machines? I know different teams have different kind of money behind them, but you know, from a standpoint of a Mercedes versus a Haas, you know, what are, what are some of the costs that we're looking at here? What they're limited to, limited to over a whole season is $140 million. That's their maximum this year that they can spend. Uh, that's due to go down actually next year. Uh, and that involves a design process. Uh, it involves a lot of stuff. So, um, but then that's to do 22 races this year. So they've got to be really careful with where they spend their money. And of course, there's the manufacturing of it. There's just the the building of it. I mean, I'm going to try and put some some costs out there. You know, steering wheels. People often say about um, twenty thousand, fifty thousand euros. You know, just for the just for the the, the steering wheel. You've got the hydraulic system can be you know about by the time you've got everything and the hydraulic system includes you know uh, the the all, all sorts of things the throttle the sorry uh, the, the, the the DRS system um, mm. you know inlet valve stuff like that that can come to one hundred seventy thousand euros just on one car. And the thing is that, yes, it costs a lot to manufacture these things, but you've also got to design it. You've got to pay all the people that design it. And so the top teams will be absolutely up against that $140 million threshold. Uh, and then you'll have the teams like Haas, who, because they just haven't really raised the money to, to, to hit that $140 million, they'll be trying to do it on an even smaller budget. And the idea of the budget cap, which you mentioned, which is only really a recent introduction in F1, uh, is so that the big teams, which at one stage were spending upwards of $300 million, sometimes $400 million in the peak of 
spending among some of the manufacturers. The idea was to bring them a little bit closer down to the level of some of the teams struggling to go around. Because at the end of the day, in Formula 1, you've only got 10 teams. And I mean, more and more, it's the case that uh, that you've only got really three teams competing for victories. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that later on. But uh, the idea is that they want to create a slightly more level playing field, or certainly level it off to some extent, so that you don't have this huge disparity between the teams, because it's such an expensive sport. And um, it's, it's interesting now because you, you'll look at some of the cars and they will actually recycle parts that they would never have dreamed of recycling before because they're so worried about going over this budget cap that now exists. But it's, it's an incredibly expensive sport, even more so when uh, one of the drivers crashes. I mean, Nate, you, you were down pass <laughs> earlier this year yeah. when Mick Schumacher wrote off, uh, off a couple of cars. And what was, this, what was the number so- that you gave for that? See, you're reading my mind, Lawrence. I was about to bring up Mick. Um, yeah, his two crashes this year, he had one in Saudi, which was over $1 million. And then Monaco, where, to be honest, he made a fairly you know, a fairly small mistake, but basically tore the car in two. And that cost, has estimated close to $2 million. So that's two crashes uh, from one driver. And that's, you know, that's that's probably in excess of $3 million. So that's that's where, on the human side of things, from the driver's perspective, you know, if you have a driver that is crashing a lot, it suddenly doesn't become worth your while to keep them in the car. So that's another part of the the whole the whole of F1 um, that you've got to consider is that you've got drivers that are driving these incredibly expensive cars. You need to have someone you know isn't going to keep putting them in the wall. And that's where pressure can come from and teams can grow frustrated with drivers. Nothing really in F1 is is super is, is super cheap, really. Like everything seems to have an extra zero on it than you might expect. And I've always found that just to be absolutely baffling, you know, some of the numbers that get thrown around. So yeah, very expensive sport across the board. So there's 10 teams, as we've mentioned, 20 drivers and two championships. So Nate, can you break down the Constructors' Championship and then the Drivers' Championship and how teams and drivers earn points to win each? Absolutely. So I've always I've always thought of it, and Lawrence might disagree with me, but I've always thought there's two championships in F1, one that the teams really care about and one that the fans really care about, and they're not the same championship. Um, and the Constructors' Championship is that first one. The teams get their money based on their finishing position in that team's championship. So their drivers through a race will score points. Those those points go into both championships. Um, and the Constructors' Championship, I mean, it's it's the teams take it incredibly seriously. I mean, it is... You know, teams. If you're a mechanic, your bonus is 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 linked to where you finish in that championship. You know, the, the amount of money the team gets for the next season. You know, it's all it's it's all super super important, and it's easy to not focus on that. But for the midfield teams, especially later in the year, all you'll hear them talk about is we have to beat so and so to fourth or so and so to sixth. Um, but the drivers' championship is always the one that kind of I guess gets the more attention because it's it's one human being against another one. So last year, you obviously had Mercedes and Red Bull fighting for this Constructors' Championship, but the real tension and the real drama was around Lewis and Max because they kind of epitomized that fight. And often you get the case being that the team that's fighting for the, the teams that are fighting for the Constructors are fighting for the Drivers' Championship. Not always the case. One time, you know, sometimes one team is just scoring so many points every every weekend that they kind of wrap that up. But the two drivers just happen to be sharing points in a different kind of way. Um, so yeah, that's really where it's at. And and the drivers, the drivers championship, I think has, has grown in stature just you know since the beginning of formula one and, you know, attaching your name to that is, is just, I mean, it's, it, it's why they call it the world championship, you know, it is, it's just so prestigious. And 
Um, I think it would be easier. I mean, I even sometimes struggle if someone says who won the driver's championship and you say a year, I'm always like, I know who won it that year. If you say who won the constructors that year, I'm like, ah, usually I know. Usually I feel like I know, but there's some years I'm like, did they win that year or was it somebody else? Because it just, as a fan growing up, you were like, I want, I want to know which person wins the championship. And um, I think that's again, what is just so unique about, about F1 is you've got these two things going on, both incredibly important. Um, but yeah, just from a, from a drama point of view, the human side of it is obviously super important. And um, yeah, like Abu Dhabi last year, if, if, if that had been, if the championship on the driver's side had been decided, but it was for the constructors championship might not have been as dramatic as Max yeah. passing Lewis. It still would have been a great finish to the race, but might not have been to fans. They might not have thought, Oh, this is, you know, incredibly dramatic, even yeah. though, for those teams, they would have thought, well, this is still as dramatic, as important to us. It's it's great to follow in both senses. And it explains why teams sometimes get into situations where they're like, well, we actually have to prioritize this guy over this guy in this race because he's gonna win. And he's we're gonna get we're gonna get more points if we prioritize this guy today than you. That they're not always thinking about the drivers' championship. And that's often something you have to remind people is that for the teams, like their first goal is how do we score as many points as possible for the team? And then, like you said at the top of the show, Katie, was their teammates, but they're also, they always say, my biggest rival is the guy in the other car. Mm -hmm. So for the drivers, they kind of have that different mindset and the team are like, well, okay, you guys can fight, but fight nice, play nice, because we need you guys to, we need you to stay on track together and score these points. So, um, you know, Lawrence can can speak to this as well, but in 2014, uh, well, 2014, 15 and 16, when we had Hamilton Rosberg, Mercedes knew they were going to win championships that year. So suddenly they had this horrible conundrum of, well, they're costing us points in the team championship because if you know they collided a couple of times so yeah it, it always creates a, a really great dynamic and um there's just there's again storyline on top of storyline narrative on top oh, of yeah. narrative and just all over the place so it's another thing f1 does really well that is so unique to anything else yeah it is and there's a clear hierarchy when it comes to the strongest teams in the sport especially right now and lawrence you kind of alluded to it i think subconsciously just by throwing out three names but the big three if you will consists of Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari right now. So these teams have the best chance to win the Constructors and the Drivers' Championship. So, Lawrence, for historical purposes, let's just begin with Ferrari. How would you describe the iconic red team? Well, it is the only team that's been in Formula 1 since the beginning, the first season in 1950, and that carries a huge amount of weight. And then there's this uh, mythology around Ferrari. Enzo Ferrari set it up and, um, you know, he's a real hero. He was a racing driver himself. And anybody that knows road car brands, they know Ferrari because it's right at the top. It's the one everyone wants. And you know what? The development of all those beautiful road cars, um, Enzo Ferrari set that up to pay for his racing. He wanted uh, enough money to be able to go racing and develop the best technologies by selling off road cars. So there's so much history there. And then there's the kind of Schumacher era from uh, around what well, he joined in 96, but the success started really in 2000. In 1999, they won the Constructors' Championship, let's not forget, but his success started in 2000. And there was just this domination of the sport. And a lot of uh, fans were turned off by that because Ferrari were just simply too successful. But a lot of people loved it. And, you know, a lot of people love uh, Michael Schumacher to this day because of that period of success and how brilliant he was uh, behind the wheel. So you've got that. And then you've got the more recent history of Ferrari where something always seems to go wrong. One thing or another just seems to slip through their fingers and uh, they haven't won a championship since uh, 2007 as a result, a driver's championship. So um, it's, a, it's a great team to, to follow because there's all that history and yet 
they're always kind of making new history and there's always stories around them and they are still the biggest uh you know the biggest name really in formula one and the biggest team so um yeah i think you can't you can't not love ferrari a little bit if you're a formula one fan uh but i can understand uh people supporting other teams against them as well they're kind of like the dallas cowboys i would say if there's a u.s team comparison team that's just steeped in history synonymous with the sport they play but just can't at the moment get it right can't win I think that's fair. I was going to say as a newer fan coming into it, all I hear about how it's so painful being a Ferrari fan. So I was going to liken them to like the Cincinnati Bengals who finally made it to a Super Bowl. So so they've got that monkey off their back or like the Georgia Bulldogs in college football, the Buffalo Bills. I mean, teams that it's been really, really painful for those fans for years and years and years, just wanting a championship to return. But I think in terms of the iconic aspect of the team Dallas Cowboys is probably the most accurate uh comparison here in the states yeah there might be some angry NFL fans listening to this now who also are Ferrari fans and can't stand the Cowboys so apologies if that's the case but yeah in terms of like the history of what they did win and compared to you know how long it's been since they've won the years don't quite match up on both sides but it feels like it feels similar you know sleeping giant kind of territory so Ferrari's definitely in that camp all right well then I'll let you Nate pick between the next two who do you want to describe uh, the history and where they're at now, Red Bull or Mercedes? That's a good question. See, both of them I find really interesting. I'm going to go Red Bull because Mercedes have a similar kind of history in terms of uh, the brand, and they were out of racing for a very long time. But Red Bull are really an interesting outlier because they obviously are just an energy drinks company. And when they came into Formula One, they were very disparagingly kind of called that. You know, it was it was like, well, they're just, you know, there's just a this Austrian company that makes these very kind of, very sugary energy drinks that people seem to have when they're going clubbing in London or whatever. Um, And there was no, you know, Dietrich Mateschitz, who was the owner and the the founder of the company really was quite smart. You know, he he tried to get into a lot of extreme sports. Obviously Red Bull now has become a brand I think that is associated for most people. A lot of people probably haven't had a Red Bull in their lives, but they know that Red Bull are attached to sports. And slowly when they came into the sport, um, Red Bull, kind of they were there for a little while it's just like okay they're just a team you know with red bull branding splashed all over the card and they had toro rosso which was the you know the the sister team which is now called alpha tauri and for a few years they didn't do anything but they really were serious about getting into formula one and i think the first time i really started paying attention to them as a fan was i remember when they signed adrian newey from mclaren now adrian newey is a design legend and it was at the time suddenly you thought okay, this team is serious about winning. They're not just here for some marketing. And there's been lots of lots of brands that have got involved in Formula One just as a marketing exercise and haven't really done very well. So Red Bull came in and suddenly were very, very serious. And within five years of being in the sport, they had won the 2009 Constructors' Championship. Uh, they then won the 2010 Championship with Vettel, and he then won the next three. So he had four in a row. And they suddenly just became this team that were dominating. And I think that for teams like Ferrari and teams like McLaren and these really established Formula One teams, it was a little bit embarrassing. They felt a little bit embarrassed that this team, this kind of, again, you would always hear it. You don't hear it at all now, but this this drinks company had come in and beaten them all at their own game. Um, And they've built an incredible, just an incredible factory. They've got an incredible structure in Formula One. They obviously have their uh, driver program, which is probably the bedrock of everything they've done. They obviously had Vettel. Verstappen has come through from there as well, but a lot of drivers now that have gone through Formula One and are no longer in it. So they've just they've just really kind of I, I would argue they've redefined the game a little bit in terms of what the other teams have had to do to kind of keep up. The idea of junior drivers has always kind of existed. You've been affiliated to one team or the other, but I think Red Bull 
were the first team that really said, we're going to really invest in this driver for a long, long time. Certainly that I can remember as a fan, and we're going to do it to multiple drivers across the grid. And one of them is going to be very successful. And obviously that was with Vettel. Um, Cause now it's, it's, you know, it would be unheard of for a big, a big team to not have junior drivers attached to them. So um, that's kind of, that's what's interesting about Red Bull. It's such a different history to Ferrari. Now Red Bull is, is, is a team that just commands complete respect. And I would say, if anything, if you look at them since they're, since they started, they've been infinitely more successful than Ferrari have been uh, in the same time period. So huge feather in their cap, obviously Christian Horner's the team boss and he's, you know, he's not everybody's favorite person in, in the world, but I think as somebody to, to hold the strings of that formula one team together, he's done an incredibly good job there of doing that. And they've become, you know, they've become a force to be reckoned with, um, which is a huge contrast. I don't know if we, maybe Lawrence can do Mercedes. I don't know, but Mercedes has kind of, I think is between Ferrari and Mercedes. So it's kind of between Ferrari and Red Bull in the sense that they do have the brand, but they also spent a long time out of F1 and came back and immediately were very successful. Um, so they've kind of straddled both the storylines, but I can let Lawrence do a quick kind of explainer on that. Cause I've just been talking for a little while. I, I appreciate about what is effectively an energy drinks company, as I've said a few times. So Lawrence over to you for Merck. Yeah, I mean, Mercedes is, is an interesting one. Like I say, it's got that history because in 1954 and 55, they were in Formula One and they did a very kind of Mercedes German thing, which has come in and dominate the sport for two years. And uh, the reason they pulled out was actually nothing to do with Formula One, but it was a disaster at Le Mans where one of their cars crashed in 1955, killed 83 people. Um, back then, cars had quite a lot of magnesium in them and it kind of there's a ball of flames and bits of magnesium were flying everywhere it was a really horrible horrible accident and uh as you can understand uh probably mercedes decided that it was a good idea to step back from from motorsport and really there was a long period where they dabbled in different bits of motorsport you know they did sports cars there was the german touring cars so they did have a presence in motorsport but it was really in the 90s where they came back as an engine supplier and a lot of people will remember, a lot of people still think when they think of Mercedes in Formula One, McLaren Mercedes, because that was that iconic partnership uh, that took, um, well, first of all, Mika Hakkinen to championships, Adrian Newey, who we talked about earlier, the guy who Red Bull really wanted. Well, his one of his periods of success was with McLaren designing cars that Mika Hakkinen won the championship with. And then... Um, uh, they came close with Kimi Raikkonen, who we've mentioned already in this podcast. Uh, and then the Mercedes engines were in Lewis Hamilton's first championship winning car in 2008. So, um, you know, they've had this uh, big history and, and they were looking at the sport and it was around 2009 that they decided that they wanted to come back in in a big way. And at that point, uh, there was a team up for sale which was the Braun team, which you may have heard about Braun. Uh, there was this kind of whole fairy tale story about it. Basically, Honda pulled out the sport. Honda built up this massive, uh, brilliant F1 team in Brackley. And uh, then the financial crash happened and they decided that they couldn't be laying people off in their car manufacturing plants, but still racing in Formula One. Again, completely understandable. So Honda pulled out. Braun, uh, Ross Braun, a name a few of you may be familiar with if, if you followed the sport the last few years. He's now heading up uh, Formula One's racing um racing team and uh basically he took over the team for one pound uh ran it for a year won both championships thanks to all the investment honda put in and mercedes looked and they're like well you know this team is going to be up for sale uh braun was quite keen not to uh, continue to have the financial burden of running it and so uh he offloaded it to mercedes unfortunately by that point there was a lot of investment that had gone missing so mercedes came back into the sport in 2010 
they looked around who who could they have as a driver. Michael Schumacher, uh, who retired initially in 2006 after that long period of success with Ferrari, decided he wanted back in. So Mercedes brought in Schumacher and we thought, wow, you know, this is going to be an unstoppable team. They've taken over a championship winning team in Braun. They've got Michael Schumacher. They are Mercedes, who we know don't do anything by halves. They'll go and win everything. And they didn't. Uh, they didn't win any, any, really much at all for about three years. And I remember uh, I used to do a, a column with Sterling Moss, who was one of the original Mercedes drivers from the 50s. And uh, he just said, it's not the Mercedes I recognise. It's not the Mercedes I recognise because they weren't as dominant as they once were. However, what they were waiting for was, again, we talked about regulation changes earlier. In 2014, there was a huge regulation change based on the engine side. Mercedes being experts in all sorts of things, uh, engine and mechanical, got a head start on everyone. Uh, they actually used a bit of truck technology, which really helped them uh, go forward. So they build obviously the trucks, you know, that you see sometimes uh, driving on on the highway. They used a bit of technology from that, put it into the engine. They used all their other expertise from racing, put it in. And in 2014, they had this dominant car. And that's the Mercedes most fans, uh, new fans at least to the sport, will recognise the Mercedes that went and won every championship from yeah. 2014 through to uh, 2020 uh, and with Lewis Hamilton winning, Nico Rosberg winning, but then, of course, coming up against Max Verstappen last year. So that's history of Mercedes. And um, and uh, they've had a setback this year, no doubt. The car's not quite as competitive as it once was, but um, all the intelligent people that have been there all the way along are still there. So they're still really a force to be reckoned with. And I think we're already seeing signs that they're getting on top of the problems they had this year. No more porpoising. Lewis Hamilton just put in fastest lap at Silverstone. So promise for uh, newer Mercedes fans. And, and analytics shows that uh, four-hour show episodes uh, do not do well with fans. So without doing a disservice to the other seven teams, since we've only just hit three of the ten, just real quickly, if you're a new fan to F1, who's a driver or a different team that you would keep an eye on that you guys have loved covering in your time in the sport? I would say McLaren because they've got the history there. We talked a little bit there about McLaren Mercedes. Well, there's even more history further back from that. There's McLaren Honda. Ayrton Senna is probably a name that even new fans will be aware of because he was a real legend. His three championships came with McLaren. So there's loads of history there. There's still They still should be a big team in Formula One, but they've kind of lost their way a little bit over the last few years. But more than anything right now, as a new fan coming in, you've got two of the most exciting drivers. Lando Norris, young British driver, exceptionally talented, very popular, very um, kind of aware of what's going on in social media kind of arena as well. And then Daniel Ricciardo, who's probably just the most lovable driver on the grid, I think. So uh, definitely my team to look out for beyond the top three. Formula One right now, it has an abundance of really nice kind of nice guys that you can root for. It doesn't really have any guys that really stand out as like, you know, like a really bad egg. And sometimes in sports, you need some of those people. But team wise, I was going to give a shout out because we're after all doing it, ESPN pod for a largely US audience. One of my favorite teams to cover has been Haas for, since they've joined the grid. I think that it's a great story. It's a shame that they've kind of it's been quite roller coaster for them. They, they had the, the highs of 2018. And they haven't quite been able to replicate it, but they have one of my favorite drivers to cover at the team in Kevin Magnussen. And then obviously we've mentioned the name Schumacher a lot so far. They have Mick Schumacher, who has just scored points at the British Grand Prix, finally scoring Formula One points. The jury's still kind of out, I guess, of how good Mick is, but it's a really nice story to follow. And yeah, there's so many people across the grid. And like you said, we're doing a lot of teams, a lot of drivers a disservice by just not mentioning them, but that's just a handful. 
Well, you're doing Gunther Steiner a disservice by not mentioning yeah. him. When you talk about Haas, he's one of the most crotchety yet engaging, charismatic principles yes. on the game. I, I can't believe I, I said Haas and didn't mention him. I, uh, unbelievable, because he was in my head as I said it. Um, in <laughs> fact, the most recent time I saw him, I came into the, um, the hospitality at Silverstone, um, going to see my friend Stu Morrison, who's head of comms there. And Gunther... You know, he know he recognizes a lot of us and he's always he's always quick to just have a quick joke and i went to get a coffee at the, the front of their motorhome and he was just pointing at me and he was like you effing freeloader like and he was with a big smile on his face he's like you guys are all the same then walks past me pats me on the back and says how are you doing i was like yeah i'm good good to see you and he walks off just kind of laughing and that to me is it shows you he is he is the gunderstein you see on netflix is the same that you see when he, when the cameras aren't there that is just him um he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't turn things up you know he doesn't show yeah. off he's just he's just always like that so it might be exhausting to be with him 24 7 so i think getting him in small doses is fine um but yeah just he also every single person that's ever worked with gunther steiner i think would run through a brick wall for him i think he's got a really good management style so you know he's not just a comedy figure he's actually a you know he's a very very smart guy very good racing guy but yeah hard not to hard not to root for him and for that team he likes you if he's cutting on you, if he's, Hope on so. his, you know what I mean? I mean, I am, I am also a freeloader. I'm always at that team getting a oh, coffee. So yeah. he is, he's, he might, he might like me and he might be making a very fair point. So apologies very if he's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like anything you, you mentioned Vettel going on the show about questions. Uh, when you're exposed to new things, people have questions. And this segment is uh, where we're going to ask the important ones. So I was Googling um, some different things, preparing for our material for this episode of the show. And, you know, when you Google something and it tries to guess what you're searching for before you actually finish your question or the search. Well, I decided to grab uh, 10 or so of the most searched F1 questions. (laughs) And uh, I hope you enjoy because some of them are pretty good. First and foremost, and I don't know if you guys actually have an answer for this, um, people want to know why are F1 drivers so handsome? <laughs> it's a, a good, good question. question. Yeah. And it's completely unfair because they have everything else going for them in life. They're racing drivers. They get to do the best job in the world. Most of them get paid an extremely large amount of money and they're already handsome. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's something well, to do with the G forces. It kind of, manipulates, <laughs> they kind of make some work on their facial muscles. I don't know. I, I don't it's know like what a- it is. They are, they are they're, they're good looking crop of, young men aren't they at the moment i think as well if you look at a lot of the guys like so danny ricardo like if you look at him when he when he joined formula one like he just he just a lot of them when they join they look like kind of kids that have almost out like haven't quite fit into their body yet and then the glow up for a lot of them is very good so i'm always super jealous when we're sitting talking at a, at a table at a media conference with these drivers and i'm like not only do you have one of the coolest jobs in the world but you're also like just yeah just radiating good looks it's just it's just not fair there needs to be more very bad looking F1 drivers. I'd, I'd root for that guy in a, in a heartbeat, but I don't think that I don't think it exists. I don't know. I will say, I think drive to survive did um, push certain glow ups, maybe not certain drivers, but I think as you go through the seasons, you see maybe um, a different set of teeth or you yeah. see a different hairline for some like Vettel with his new hair. Yeah. Vettel, yeah, I think Vettel I- led into that. Being on television, having the new fans and the surge in America, I think has um, driven some to maintain themselves in a different way. Um, but yeah, that one I think is is the funniest when you hear, um, I don't want to say older women in the States, but you know, like my, my aunts, for example, 
they love drive to survive. And their main question is like, they're just, there's not a bad looking one every guy that pops up and talks. And then they say the team principals, of course, are, are handsome as well. So a good looking sport. Don't know why, how it happens, but uh, certainly something people are interested in. Bowel movements is another search. Um, it doesn't matter which bowel movement both have been searched for. Um, people want to know how do F1 drivers pee or poop in their suits or do they just hold it? Um, I, I know for a fact that some of them do pee in their suits and it sounds horrible, doesn't it? But what they're like marathon they're, runners. It's natural. They, they, that's it. And they also have to take on a huge amount of fluid beforehand because certainly somewhere like Singapore, they'll lose kilos in sweat. And we are talking kilos of weight in, in sweat. So, um, so they have to take on all this fluid and, you know, it has to go somewhere. And when you're driving around, you're not going to stop during a pit stop and say, oh, hang on, guys, you know, just a minute because a minute will drop you to the back of the field. So they have to go in there. The the number twos, I'm not so sure on. Um, I've not heard of that so much. But there has been examples where drivers have been ill and gone racing. And okay. there was a very famous example in Japan with Mark Webber, where he vomited in his helmet, which is pretty grim. And you can but, find the radio. Yeah. You can find him doing that on the radio on YouTube. That actually exists. Um, you can listen to it. If I, you're, I, yeah. I, do, I think... I do love doing these shows real quick because you guys expand my vocabulary and you give me new sayings. Uh, but real quick for a conversion, um, when they're losing kilos, would that be like less than a pound? So I think, is it six kilograms is 14 pounds? I don't know. Have I made that up? I think I just made that up. Conversion is not my, that sounds like way too much. How much weight? Well, I guess you did it because it's in kilos. I one just... one kilogram, two point oh, two pounds. Oh, where is that coming from? This is our oh, this is our great producer, Dave Presley. Sorry, say it again, Dave. One kilogram is two point two zero four six two pounds. Okay. Wow. There you how go. How did you say that they lose? So that would mean they would lose sometimes six to eight pounds. A really a really hot race um just just through the exertion and, and the sweat crazy huh? and you and you can see it when especially in some of the hotter races when they get out of the car you know we we talk to them quite quickly after the race sometimes and sometimes they're absolutely exhausted like they the last thing they want to be doing is stood upright talking to a bunch of people with their phones in their face another one that um i don't know people are curious but seems just absolutely crazy to me uh, given everything that they've got going on. Uh, people want to know, can F1 drivers listen to music while they drive? <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I interviewed Daniel Ricciardo uh, earlier this year in Miami, and he said he would have been world champion if he could have listened to music going around because uh, we, we, it was a really cool interview, actually. We were out on uh, jet skis in Miami, yeah. and, and he had this one that could play music back to him. So he was going around kind of the, uh, the bay in Miami listening to music, and he's like, you know what, if I could have that in an F1 car, I would have been a world champion by now. So sadly, they can't. They can't listen to music. Uh, what they do have is radio of their team. So their engineer constantly talking to them, or not constantly, but giving them the right information they need at the right times uh, to talk them around the track, what they need to do, setting changes and all that kind of stuff. So in theory, they could play music through to them. But no, they, they don't, sadly. Although you do see uh, often... Um, we have a lot of music before the race now just for the fans, but also the national anthem. You'll always see Daniel Ricciardo kind of getting his groove on, bopping along to like a national anthem, which I think is kind of cool. So it doesn't matter what the music is, Daniel Ricciardo, it kind of takes him to another level. So um, yeah, if there's any driver that does do it, it's him. 
But okay. no, the reality is they don't, unfortunately. I don't know if you guys do this, but if I've got my GPS in the car and I'm trying to find a place that I've never been to and the music's too loud, I always turn the music down because it's like, I can't focus on where I'm going or what I'm trying to find. Not that that correlates whatsoever, but you mentioned the radio comms and, and for us fans who are not there in person, we always hear different radio messages between, you know, their team engineer and, and the driver. And it's very specific to certain moments, certainly. How often is that communication between the two happening? Is it, is it really consistent throughout the entirety of the race? Is it only specific moments when they have to tell you, obviously, to box box or, you know, there's something wrong with the tires? Like, is it sparingly? Is it all the time? Because I would think that that, too, takes away from your focus, constantly having to talk with your team engineer. You know, nowadays you can find everything online, right? You can find these like extended cuts. And a lot of them are very dull messages. It's like, you know, flip the switch to five or something. And it's like, yeah, okay, done it. Um, but you can understand why a lot of the drivers tell their engineers to stop talking to them because they've got to, the, the engineers have to pick the perfect moment on the track to talk to their driver. Like that, they they don't just open it, open up the radio and talk whenever they'll say, right, there's three points on this track where I'm not going to distract him. He's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be breaking. He's not going to be doing anything super technical. Um, and I think that that's one of the that's one of the challenges they have sometimes is getting this information to drivers urgently, but also thinking, well, I need to, you know, I, I need to convey this to him. I, I spoke to, I did a piece around 2008 and the Brazilian Grand Prix when Lewis Hamilton won with the penultimate corner. I spoke to Phil Prue, who was his, who was his uh, engineer at the time. And on that final lap, when he was, no one knew it at the time, but he was catching Timo Glock and he passed Timo Glock with half a corner left. So, so sorry, with two corners left he was getting shouted at by his boss to say like, tell Lewis, tell Lewis to drive at this. And he was like, Oh, I can't tell him right now. Cause he's coming through a corner. And the response he got was just bleeping. Tell him uh, because they were like, at this point in the race, we need you just to tell him this information. He was like, well, I can't, you know, me and him have this agreement. I don't talk to him at this point. And they're like, doesn't matter. So I think that, yeah, there's so much going on behind the scenes there. And what's interesting, Lawrence alluded to it earlier with mission control. Like there's, the guys on the pit wall are also talking to guys back at base. And it is the amount of stuff that is going on is just unbelievable. Mercedes released a really interesting video once where they talked about how, I think it was a Spanish Grand Prix, how a call back at base in the UK ended up on the pit wall, ended up helping them beat Max Verstappen. And it was because of data and projections they had back at base. And they were able to kind of relay that to the race team, relay that to Lewis. And then it was just, you know, we, we see the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more going on behind the scenes, I think. Is it true, Lawrence, that other teams are listening to the comms between drivers and their team engineer to pick up on possible strategy of when they're going to pit or if something's wrong with the car? Or is there a designated person on the pit wall that's listening just to Mercedes drivers and their radio comms or just Ferrari drivers? Yeah, they, they do do that. They do that back at the factory in the mission control yeah. areas. And they usually give it to the students they have there who are kind of there on a placement or they give it to uh, the junior engineers who are just starting out. So it's one of the early jobs uh, that you do if you're just trying to get into the world of Formula 1 engineering. But it is crucially important because that information gets fed up. Again, like, like I said, there's this kind of matrix of how information goes towards the driver. And sure, it could be the student that listens to it and then get, passes it on to the guy looking after all the students who then passes it on to the team uh, manager or the, you know, the, uh, the chief race engineer who then passes it on to the driver's engineer who then passes on to the driver. So that little bit of information, if it's important enough, it will go all the way, but they're listening across the board because even, even a driver you're not racing against, if he's picked a tire 
uh, a pit stop that you're thinking about going on to, but you're not quite sure if it's going to work, you're going to want to monitor that driver very closely to see yeah. how they're doing compared to how they were doing before, what the driver's saying about the tyre, whether it's working well, whether it's working not. All those little bits of information can feed towards winning a race, getting a podium. They can all make the difference. So, yeah, teams do quite a lot of that stuff. That's uh, a lot of pressure for um, maybe an inexperienced student or young engineer. Interesting. Uh, a lot of people Google terminology. What's a sector? What does DRS stand for? What does DRS do? Uh, Nate, if you, if you care to kind of break down some of the nuances uh, of what we're seeing out there. Sure. Yeah. So a sector, there's each, each lap is broken into three sectors. So um, you often will also hear going purple or going green in a sector. And that basically means if you've gone purple, you've gone quicker than anyone else in that session through that sector. Um, and it's always, it, it always makes a qualifying lap very interesting because you'll see, well, this guy was quick in sector one and then his pace went in sector three. So you can kind of work out where cars are quick versus where they're not quick. <clears throat> and drag reduction system, Lawrence mentioned earlier about how this, this rule change has kind of been to help overtaking. Well, one of the kind of the, I think it's been called a Band-Aid before, the F1 kind of slapped on itself to help overtaking was this drag reduction system. So at high speed, you open up a flap and you basically, to put it into the most simple terms possible, you drive faster in a straight line with that flap open than when you don't. It's meant to be able to help you get closer, get an overtake done. And that was actually brought in because Fernando Alonso lost the world championship in 2010, just sat looking at the back of a Renault uh, when he needed to get past and gain another position after that. And he just couldn't pass him. And they said, well, we need to be able to fix this in future. Um, and the DRS has become, I'd say, moderately successful but not everyone's favorite thing um but hopefully we're getting to the point where maybe we don't need it so much but that's where drs is and <clears throat> that in itself is fascinating because you know drivers will turn that on and it immediately it closes as soon as the drivers hit the brakes and um yeah it's just another it's just another little thing that um you, you, i mean we saw this year max there was a few races where his just wasn't working and suddenly he's like all right well half the, ha this lap i don't have it next lap i do have it that's when he was shouting at his engineers i think it was in spain yeah. They yeah. didn't have it. So, it, yeah, it's become it's become super important to Formula One since that came in. Double punching at one point, but there yeah. was something wrong with it. That's yeah. how you fix that's how you fix anything in Formula One. It turns out it's just keep hitting the button and eventually, eventually it fixes itself. Uh, this one's a bit of Pandora's box and uh, I think takes a little bit more than just a Google search. But people often Google how dangerous is F1. And I think that that's pretty timely as of right now, Lawrence. It, can you can you quantify how dangerous F1 is. Certainly, uh, safety measures have improved drastically uh, over the years. Yeah, I think the thing you have to realise is that every time a driver gets in a Formula 1 car, even in a practice session, there is a chance uh, that the worst could happen. They could die. Um, the speeds involved, the forces involved in accidents, uh, the randomness of accidents, you know, is the thing that really Formula 1 will never be able to um, legislate against and kind of create safety devices against because by their very nature, accidents don't happen in a planned way. You know, it's always something goes wrong in, in one particular way. And, you know, at times these cars are doing um, over 200 miles per hour and they're very close to concrete walls and it doesn't take a huge amount of imagination to kind of think about what could happen. Uh, there has been huge progress in safety. Um, you know, we, we, unfortunately, we have had uh, deaths in Formula, in Formula One uh, quite recently. In 2014, Joel Bianchi had an accident it's Suzuka in Japan and uh, the injuries he sustained from that accident uh, eventually led to his death. So 
it it does still happen. We've had a death in Formula Two quite recently as well with, with Antoine Hubert. So it's 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 possible that happens because of the forces involved and the rest of it. So it is incredibly dangerous. However, every time there is an accident, uh, and drivers don't have to be injured in the accident, but every time there is a serious accident, the FIA, which is a sports governing body, uh, carries out a full investigation into what happened. And often they will find that all the safety measures they put in place did their job remarkably well, and it saved a driver's life. But other times they may find that, wow, if that driver had been five metres to the left when he hit the barrier, something really bad could have happened. And so um, they do go through and they pick apart uh, everything. A really good example was the Roman Grosjean incident, which I think even if you're not a fan of Formula One, you would have seen the pictures of the huge fireball in Bahrain a couple of years ago when he went off track. And that was completely unexpected. No, you know, these cars are designed specifically not to burst into a ball of flames when they crash but something went wrong. The accident, you know, just triggered something that, that was not expected and had not been legislated against in, in the way the fuel cell, where the, where the fuel is, is kept, you know, uh, it, it ruptured. So uh, they're always looking at it, but it is, it is dangerous. And it, there will never be a way to make it completely right. safe. There's just not. But um, that is, uh, that's part of Formula One, really. Nate, can you describe the story behind the halo? Because I'm sure people at this point have heard of the halo and how the halo has done its job uh, time and time again. Yeah, absolutely. I think Lawrence and I were talking about how halo might potentially be the best thing that's ever happened in Formula One. Um, it's kind of it's kind of crazy now when you see old Formula One cars pre 2018, but they had open open cockpits. The heads were completely exposed. And one of the things that people really didn't like about the halo was that it, it changed that. It fundamentally changed something that had always been true of Formula One, that you could see the driver, you could see his head. And now, I mean, you look at the Guan Yu Zhou crash at Silverstone, you think if that halo hadn't, hadn't have existed, it's horrendous to even imagine what would have happened there um, because the head was really the last unprotected part of the, of, the, of the driver. And sadly, as Lawrence said, every innovation in Formula One and in motor racing comes from a fatality. And 2009 there was a fatality and a very serious injury that really accelerated the push for Halo. So Felipe Massa, who you know drove for Ferrari, he got hit in the head by a spring that bounced off another car. Fortunately, he didn't die, but he was really seriously injured. I mean, he was close to death when that happened in Hungary. Um, and a few days after that, John, um, John Surtees' son, Henry, John Surtees was a former world champion, got hit in the head by a wheel that had just flown off another car and it just bounced straight on his head. And you looked at it and you thought, if only there was something just above their heads to stop that from happening. There's been incidents in IndyCar as well. Justin Wilson, who was a really beloved driver, got he just drove into a piece of debris that, you know, if, you, if you're talking about randomness of crashes, he could have been millimetres to the, to the right or the left. He would have avoided it. So the push for cockpit protection has really accelerated over time. And I think that there was there was a lot of opposition. I think that it's fair enough at the time people couldn't imagine what it was going to do and, and how good it was going to be. People thought it's going to be awful. People are going to laugh at what the cars look like. And I think I remember the first time you saw it on, you thought that does look really strange. And now I find it strange to see a car without the halo on. You know, it sure. just looks natural. It looks like part of it. And I think we've there's four instances since 2018 where it's definitely saved a life. I think Charlotte Clerk and Spa, he had Alonso's car go over him. Um, you had Lewis Hamilton when Max landed on top of his car at, at Monza last year. Obviously, the Grosjean incident that Lawrence mentioned, and then um, and then Joe uh, at Silverstone. So, you know, all of those incidents would have been would have been at least very serious injuries if if the halo didn't exist. I mean, Hamilton after that crash still had still had neck pain because sure. the car still did bounce down on his head. Um, but there was this halo, and the halo when it was brought in, they said we want it to withstand the pressure of 
that's basically dropping a, a London double double decker bus on it, which I'm sure people might be familiar with those big red buses we have in in London, um, and that was what they kind of you know the forces they kind of worked with. So incredible feats of engineering, and um, I think it's a real testament to the FAA that they kind of went against what the common consensus was among a lot of you know a lot of drivers. I mean, I think Toto Wolff's rode back on it now, but he famously said if he could, he would have cut it off with a chainsaw at the time he was like i hate it it looks awful but then and, he um, was the first one to say after monza i think it was in drive to survive where he said i'm so glad nobody listened to me when i was saying yeah. we don't need this because it saved lewis's life that day and grosjean was similar you know he was a big he was a you know he was really against just the concept of it and he said i'm not sure this is the right thing to do and he he came out and said afterwards he was like couldn't have been more wrong glad i was wrong um, so I think it's it's done a huge amount of good and it's a great example of racing just reacting in a very sensible, logical way. Like we have to have this in and it doesn't doesn't matter what the DNA of the sport is. You know, it's made it's made racing a lot safer. Like Lawrence said, never going to eliminate it completely. But I think that that has really I think it's probably it's probably cut the risk significantly. It's not eliminated it, but it's probably cut the risk significantly. And, you know, again, at some point, sadly, something will probably happen you know, with a driver that people say, well, why didn't the Halo do its job there? And it's like, well, it probably did do its job, but there's something else we haven't considered that has happened here. So sadly, that's just the nature of the beast. But Halo's been been awesome. And IndyCar has something fairly similar in terms of it's got an aero screen. Um, and that is basically just a glass around the driver. Um, similar concept, just slightly different philosophy. Um and yeah, it's again, it's just to it's just to protect the drivers from from things flying and 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 hissing them. Yeah. Before I let you guys go, and I have one last question, and I hope this doesn't create a, a massive debate. Um, maybe we'll just turn it into its own episode at a later date. But if you had to recommend an F1 related movie uh, or documentary or show or anything to a new fan, what would it be and why? So we were talking about F1 Danger. I think Rush, the Ron Howard movie that was made uh, about the Nicky Lauda, James Hunt rivalry in 76. It shows you just how far racing's come. It's a fantastic movie about their rivalry, but one of the key parts of that movie, um, and it's incredibly well-made, incredibly well-acted, uh, but Nicky Lauda was basically pulled out of a burning car and he still raced on that season. And he famously, for the rest of his life, you know, he wore a red hat and you know you could see the scars on his face. But the, that film picks up perfectly that season, that rivalry, and just the, I think, I'm pretty sure the opening line in it is that it's something like every year four of us die doing this. So, it, it, you know, it's from that era where where death was just right there. And it's a great movie. It captures that sense of of kind of danger really, really well. Um, and yeah, it's it's also got some incredible racing scenes in it. So I always love that film. I think it's really, really good. And I, if you haven't seen it, would recommend some great acting in it. And it's got it's got um, Chris Hemsworth in it as well. If that, if anyone else listening needs any you know, any not a further. driver, but handsome. Yeah. So again, going back to what you were saying, like there's something about it. Maybe maybe Chris Hemsworth is since he was in that movie, they've just all got a lot more handsome. Maybe that maybe that's what it is. What about you, Lawrence? Um, I think for a new fan, Senna is a must-watch because as you get more and more into Formula One, you'll learn more and more about Ayrton Senna. He's the hero of a number of drivers on the grid right now, including Lewis Hamilton. You know, it was his childhood hero. So uh that's a great documentary. And it's not just a brilliant documentary for F1 fans. It's actually quite a revolutionary documentary in a number of ways. There's no talking head. So you don't just get a camera view of someone talking about how great Ayrton Senna was. It's all original footage stitched together in this kind of really 
viewable way and they've got a lot of original footage on board stuff and there's something about on board footage from that era the late 80s the early 90s where it's a little bit more raw the car's bouncing around that bit more the camera isn't properly stabilized and it really does just give you a sense of the forces and uh, the speed and the adrenaline involved in, in driving a Formula one car so there's that plus the story of Senna's life which is a remarkable one but also a tragic one um i think you know most people will be aware that he he died in racing in formula one in 1994 and uh, it takes you right up to that and uh, and everything that happened around that and there was an example when we're talking about f1 safety of an accident that triggered a huge amount of changes to formula one and increased the safety dramatically after after that accident so really important one to watch and i think um even if you're not an f1 fan you'll be drawn into it because it's just so well put together um and certainly if you're an f1 fan you've probably either already watched it or um it's going to be right on the top of your list yeah, I watched it before I came down to Miami for the historical context. As you mentioned, as a, as a newer fan, you hear the name, you hear the references, and you just want to educate yourself. And it, it was um, not only an incredible documentary, but very, very moving. Um, I didn't quite realize, um, you know, the history of it. And then there was a crash the day before they raced. Uh, yeah. and, and Ayrton was one of the ones who said we shouldn't be doing this. And yet they did. And it obviously led to a tragedy, but it's an excellent documentary, uh, very educational as well. Uh, we'll, we'll do a, an episode or a show, I think, um, and go into because Ford versus Ferrari, not necessarily F1, but that's a great movie as well. Uh, there's a there's a long list uh, if you're if you're wanting to really dive into the sport um, in motorsport just in general. So this was um, F1 for newbies episode. We appreciate you as always joining us. Um, while we only just started to peel back the curtain on this action-packed sport, um, the good news is that Unlapped will be launching an episode every single week. We're going to div- dive deeper into F1. We'll preview races, recap races, bring on special guests for interviews. But most importantly, we're just going to hang out and geek out about F1. So we hope you join us and do the same. Until next week, uh, make sure you like the video, subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content, and leave us your comments on what you want to hear and see in future episodes of Unlapped. I'm Kitty George, Nate Saunders, Lawrence Edmondson. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.